Chapter 1, April 1968 It's probably fair to say that anyone familiar with even basic history of the Vietnam War has heard of the Hanoi Hilton, the infamous prison where American prisoners of war, mostly fighter pilots, were imprisoned and tortured for years. The Hanoi Hilton, real name Hua Lo Prison, was one of several prison camps in North Vietnam that together held at least 606 American POWs from the early 1960s until 1973, when the Paris Peace Accords ended the war and Operation Homecoming brought home 566 American military POWs, along with 25 American civilians and foreign nationals. Each of those prisons was known by two names, its Vietnamese name, such as Hua Lo, and the name hung on it by its American occupants. The story of the party begins on the outskirts of Hanoi at a prison called Ku Lok, known to its occupants as the Zoo. The Zoo was in a centuries-old Asian city and capital of a communist country, but the prison had French roots. The French had brutally ruled Vietnam as a colony for several decades until World War II, when the Japanese overtook the Indochina Peninsula. During the Japanese occupation, Ho Chi Minh, a young and previously unknown, at least to the West, national leader, won popular support in the northern provinces. In 1945, a few weeks after the United States dropped atomic bombs on Japan to end World War II, and even as the French were reestablishing themselves in Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh formed the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, or the DRV, in the north. Both the Soviet Union and Communist China recognized the DRV by 1950, but the French spent nearly a decade fighting the well-organized insurgent armies, trying to hold their colony together with millions of dollars in U.S. military assistance. That often bloody conflict was punctuated by the North Vietnamese's brutal rout of the French at Dien Bien Phu in spring 1954, and formally ended months later with the Geneva Agreement that divided Vietnam into two nations along the 17th parallel. The French soon withdrew from Indochina, leaving a pro-West Republic of Vietnam in the South, still receiving U.S. military aid, to face an aggressive Ho Chi Minh intent on unifying his nation in the North. The United States, determined to counter the spread of Soviet or Chinese-backed communism, continued supporting South Vietnam, and as the 1950s rolled into the 1960s, U.S. military aid grew from money and advisors to full-fledged war. That was why, in the mid-1960s, dozens of U.S. fighter pilots and aircrew were held as prisoners of war by the North Vietnamese in a facility built by the French. But unlike the more infamous Hanoi Hilton, the French didn't build the zoo as a prison. It had been a movie studio. The grounds and many of the buildings were cluttered with torn movie posters, old cellulite film, dented film reels, and other movie industry bric-a-brac. The complex was dotted with trees, lychee, and other subtropical hardwoods, and the central yard, about 100 feet to a side, had a large in-ground pool in the center. It obviously had been a very posh place, one prisoner remembered. Around the pool, a paved driveway fronted the zoo's buildings. The buildings were well-made, with solid construction, and had been attractively designed before their conversion into cell blocks. The Americans named them all, with monikers like the barn, garage, office, pool hall, and the auditorium, which also was called the theater. The auditorium was literally a gutted movie theater, 
just floors with barred windows. The Vietnamese had let the grounds go to seed and turned the pool into a cesspool for human and animal waste, as well as other garbage. Farm animals frequently roamed the complex, contributing to the zoo moniker. But the presence of farm animals in a horribly misused swimming pool didn't mean the zoo was ramshackle. The Vietnamese had made several modifications to the complex in its conversion to a prison. Interior and exterior walls were added, larger buildings were partitioned off into several small cells, windows were blocked, and the complex's 12-foot perimeter wall was crowned with strands of wire barbed in electric. It was a very secure facility, and it was in Hanoi. By April 1968, Air Force Captains Bill Baugh, John Dramisi, and Don Heiliger had been cellmates in the zoo for about a year. All three were fighter pilots who had been shot down over North Vietnam the previous year. Ba on January 21st, Dramisi on April 2nd, and Heiliger on May 15th. Soon after they were captured, they entered a North Vietnamese pipeline that led them through jungles and villages to the zoo, where they lived together in a cell in a building nicknamed The Office. Bill Baugh was a 33-year-old F-4 pilot shot down while bombing a railroad west of Haiphong. He flew with a squadron of the 366th Tactical Fighter Wing Gunfighters, an Air Force unit out of Da Nang Air Base, South Vietnam. From Piqua, Ohio, he was married with three kids and a fourth on the way when he'd been captured. Just the day before his shootdown, his aircraft had been hit on a sortie in the same area, but he'd been able to guide the jet safely back to base. Not so on January 21, 1967. He ejected with his backseater, Don Spoon, and was knocked unconscious in the ejection. He awoke, still aloft in his parachute, but he was knocked out again and badly injured when he and his parachute crashed through the trees. He sustained a compressed vertebra and a horrific head injury that broke his jaw and cheekbone, ripped open his scalp, and blinded his right eye. After all that, in 16 months of prison and torture, he somehow retained a sense of humor. It shielded a fear that he would never go home. John Dramisi was a short, muscular 35-year-old from New Jersey, an F-105 pilot flying out of the 13th Tactical Fighter Squadron at Karat Air Base in Thailand. He was shot down near Badon, and from the moment he hit the ground in North Vietnam, he resisted his enemy. He exchanged gunfire with NVA soldiers and was shot in the leg before his capture and had briefly escaped captivity during his journey to Hanoi. He had been beaten and tortured viciously over the previous year, but his leg had healed and he remained physically fit through a regimen of exercise he followed even in their hot, cramped cells. Don Heiliger was a 31-year-old F-105 pilot with a 388th Tactical Fighter Wing, also based at Karat one of only 25 F-105 pilots trained for all-weather combat missions, a program known in aviation circles as Ryan's Raiders for Air Force Chief of Staff John D. Ryan, he was shot down during a low-level night bombing of a railroad yard 300 miles north of Hanoi. He was a pudgy, hook-nosed man from Madison, Wisconsin, who survived his capture without significant injury. An accounting major in college, he was meticulous, good with numbers and dates, and an overall nice guy liked by his cellmates. All of those traits were useful skills in their prison. On good days, the trio's life in the zoo was a dreary routine. 
Soon after dawn, each day, the prisoners were awakened by the morning clangor. A spent cannon shell hung by a rope from the branch of a courtyard lychee tree. Every morning, a young North Vietnamese soldier beat it with a metal rod. The clanging tone rang across the compound, and it was a familiar tune to the prisoners. Single peals sped to a drum-rolling crescendo. A breath of a pause, then a final strike, like an executioner's gunshot. Moments later, the day began with the guards' arrival for morning headcount and the day's ration of cigarettes. Meals, two a day, were taken in that cell, usually rice and weak pumpkin soup delivered by the turnkeys or camp workers. Shortly before the first meal, a turnkey would lead the prisoners out of the cell into the courtyard to empty their toilet buckets and wash themselves with dirty well water. They got about 15 minutes outdoors, one cell at a time, making it difficult to communicate with other cells, or know how many Americans, and who, were captive in nearby cells. Occasionally, they were put on work details to pull weeds or perform other menial labor. They didn't mind. It was allowed under the United States Code of Conduct for Prisoners of War, and it let them exercise, recon their environment, and communicate. But otherwise, those 15 minutes outdoors in the courtyard and a barred and shuttered cell window that let in bugs but little breeze or light were the only respite from the cell's gray walls and an existence of sweaty and rancid odors. Those were, literally, the good days. A change in that routine, particularly when the Vietnamese took people from their cells, was a time for fear and prayer. The North Vietnamese did not consider their American captives prisoners of war. As they often pointed out in their propaganda broadcasts, the United States had never issued a formal declaration of war on their country. To North Vietnam, American pilots were air pirates, guilty of illegal bombing. The Geneva Convention and their basic human rights were forfeit. Beatings, torture, starvation, and an endless array of minor abuses were the norm, often at the whim of soldiers who'd been taught since childhood to hate Westerners. The Vietnamese sometimes took the Americans, singly or in groups, to various locations for propaganda activities. The prisoners were paraded before the local population to incite anti-American sentiment or even shown to international media, branded as war criminals imprisoned for bombing the peaceful people of North Vietnam. Secretly, some Americans were beaten and tortured into making propaganda films or tapes in which they were forced to confess to false war atrocities. This happened in all the prisoner of war camps in and around Hanoi. Bakulok Prison, the living hell for 120 other American aviators, had such a reputation for putting its captives on display that the Americans had dubbed it the Zoo. When the North Vietnamese began moving prisoners out of the zoo in October 1967, it wasn't like that. The Americans were not coming back. The remaining occupants didn't know why, or where, or who was next. Men were moved singly, not en masse and blindfolded with no prior notice. A contingent of guards would arrive at a zoo cell, command all prisoners but one to put their faces against the wall, then order the remaining prisoner to gather his meager belongings. The prisoner would use his blanket as a makeshift sack, holding typically a bar of lye soap, a splintered wooden toothbrush, a crinkled tube of Chinese toothpaste, 
a handheld wicker fan, a dented tin cup, and an extra prisoner's uniform that smelled as bad as the one he wore. He wrapped them and his mosquito net in the blanket. The mosquito nets were strung each night on twine stretched across the room, but the net wasn't a sign of Vietnamese civility. Mosquitoes were probably the only creatures that outnumbered the flies and rats in the camp. They carried disease, and dead prisoners had no political value. No matter how they tortured or beat their American captives, the Vietnamese tried to keep them alive. Once each prisoner was led away, he was seen no more. Often, when Americans were taken from their cells, the screams of torture soon would echo throughout the camp. But the zoo had grown ominously silent. Over about seven months, several dozen American prisoners had vanished. Baudramisi and Heiliger could only wonder and wait until an undetermined day in April 1968. First, the guards came for Heiliger. A day later, Baud was taken. And the next day, Dramisi. Blindfolded and handcuffed, they were led from their cell to an unknown fate. They did not travel far. Chapter 2 the Annex. Each prisoner was walked from his cell between the buildings that housed them to a gate in the zoo's southwest wall. It wasn't the main gate, but from their recon during work details, they surmised that Hanoi lie beyond. However, there was uncertainty and disagreement among many prisoners about where in Hanoi, even generally south or east, the zoo was located. Unknown to the Americans, the North Vietnamese had converted an adjacent part of the movie studio complex into a new prison camp, separated from the zoo by only that gated wall. In October 1967, they began bringing in POWs not only from the zoo, but also from the Hanoi Hilton. The new prison featured the same high walls and security features as the zoo, but had separate military and support staff. The Americans would eventually name it the Annex, for its physical connection to the zoo. The annex was a walled compound of six buildings. Four were built in a row along the wall adjoining the zoo. The other two were adjacent to the buildings on the ends of the row, forming a bracket inside the compound. The central yard, framed by the buildings and the annex's southwest wall, featured a small pond. Unlike the zoo, the annex's six buildings were identical. Single-story, sturdily built brick structures with tile roofs and floors elevated about three feet above the ground. Bill Baugh believed that the French had used them as warehouses for something valuable and the floors were elevated to protect those contents from Hanoi's frequent summertime floods. The four buildings that stood in the row held prisoners. The NVA kept the Americans away from the fifth building, the Americans knew it held a single South Vietnamese military officer in one cell. The other cell was a mystery to them. The sixth building in the northwest corner of the compound was used for interrogations and torture. Each annex building was divided into two rooms, separated by a thick double wall. Each room had its own exterior entry that opened into a private patio yard, walled, gated, and locked from the outside. The walls were about 10 feet high, high enough that a tall man could see over only if he were standing on the top step leading into his cell. Each yard held a small well, an open cupboard for the prisoners' bowls and utensils, and an outhouse that sat on a concrete vat with a hole in the top and a large plug in the back. Heiliger recalled that, 
Every six months or so, we dug a big hole in the ground about five or six feet deep and the size of the shitter. Then the guard would knock out an outside plug and all the liquid would go into the hole. What a smell! Then they would use that liquid to fertilize the vegetable gardens. The adjacent well was about 20 feet deep, four feet wide, and lined with brick and mortar. The prisoners suspected that groundwater seeped in from the pond, where the prison staff dumped trash and sewage. As Pa noted, the floors were elevated and four steps led up to each cell's double doors, behind which was a second set of doors. The inner doors had a hand-sized shutter, allowing a turnkey to peer inside a cell. Pa said, quote, The outer door was closed at night and left open in the day. The inner was always closed and locked except when we were allowed in the courtyard. End quote. Behind the set of double doors was a cell, about 18 feet long by 20 feet wide. The 10-foot plaster ceiling had four vents that led into an attic. They were covered with barbed wire. At the end of the room opposite the entry, the only window, about two feet square and two feet off the floor, was barred and shuttered. If the North Vietnamese did not want the prisoners to see what was happening in the camp, they would close the shutters, which included a small peephole that let turnkeys peek in. The only other ventilation in each cell was six exterior air vents, square openings in the floor against the three walls without doors. Because the floors were elevated above ground, the vents were large enough for a man to stick his head down inside and spy into the prison yard through the metal grate. Most anecdotes and retold conversations in this book happened inside one annex cell or in an adjacent identical cell. The conditions were crowded, rank, and unchanging. Readers should never lose sight nor smell of that. During winter, the rooms were damp, drafty, and unheated. In summer, they were ovens made rancid by the smell of nine sweating men. Bari called. The smell of the rooms was really bad, but you'd get used to it. Just an aroma from a bunch of smelly guys and the buckets. Each room had four lidded buckets for toilets. They were emptied once a day by one unlucky prisoner tabbed by the turnkey. During the day and overnight, the smell would intensify, take on a taste. Boss said, When someone had to open the buckets, it got worse. Woe be the guy that has to go while everyone is eating. Bad timing, but sometimes guys just had to go. There was no furniture in annex cells. Nine wooden pallets lay on the floors, lining the walls four on one side and five on the other. The heads of the pallets nearly touched the walls, and there was about eight feet of open space between their feet down the middle of the room. The buckets sat at the head of the four-pallet row next to the cell door with a couple of rolls of sandpapery Vietnamese toilet paper. About five feet off the floor, four strands of nylon wire crossed the room, two strands over each row of pallets nailed to the walls at opposing ends of the room. They were for draping the mosquito nets at night. Sick Americans became dead Americans, and they had no value. Each cell had a radio speaker wired into the complex's public address system. Throughout the day, the Americans heard a continuous stream of anti-American noise from Hanoi Hanna, Vietnamese music, and recordings of other Americans who had been coerced or tortured into making anti-war statements. The North Vietnamese segregated their prisoners by rank. They filled the annex mostly with Air Force captains and Navy lieutenants, who were equal in rank, all pilots or aircrew. They kept higher-ranking officers and higher-value prisoners in the Hanoi Hilton, the zoo, and elsewhere. As the number of POWs grew, 
Prisoners were frequently shuffled and rearranged among annex cells, so much that it is hard to pinpoint when or in what order the nine men of Room 6 came together. Two decades later, seven surviving men remember the time and shuffle entirely differently from each other. However, most agreed that the first came together in Room 2 of the Annex and that Heiliger, Baugh, and Dramacy were among the last to arrive, bringing their final total to nine men in the 18 by 20 cell. More shuffling ensued in the days, perhaps weeks before they were settled, apparently permanently, in Room 6. It is here where the party takes place. Chapter 3. Connections and Reconnections Heiliger, Baugh, and Dramacy knew nothing of the annex when each passed through the zoo's southwest gate. The three zoo roommates were reunited in the annex, and there were six more men in their new cell. All were recent arrivals. Dramisi knew three of the six. One was a former cellmate from the Hanoi Hilton, Al Meyer. Quote, John Dramisi was the first American I saw in North Vietnam. End quote. Shot down and captured April 26, 1967. Meyer was the backseater on an F-105F. He was an Electronic Warfare Officer, or EWO. He grew up in a rural German community north of San Antonio, earned his degree at Texas A&M, and spoke with a deep Texas drawl. One of his cellmates described him as kind of a cantankerous old fart. He had a short temper, but he was likable. Meyer was a year into his captivity, but to his wife and two small children in College Station and to the U.S. government, he was MIA, missing in action. This is Al Meyer. They threw me in the Heartbreak Hotel, a notorious section of the Hanoi Hilton. I laid there, I don't remember exactly how long, probably something like a week and a half or two weeks after I was shot down. One night, they pulled me out of there and carried me to an interrogation room, and there was John Dramisi. They said, you're going to be roommates. Dramisi had been shot down 24 days before Meyer, and Meyer recalled that Dramisi looked the worse for the wear. And then, pretty well hammered. Uh, they had him uh, in heartbreak at the same time I was there. He was uh, in, the, in the shackle. They were cellmates for several days, perhaps a couple weeks. During that time, the North Vietnamese removed Myers' body cast and performed surgery on his leg. Quote Myers. It got infected and my leg ballooned to about twice the normal size. He took care of me and he wiped my behind for me when I couldn't wipe it myself. And they brought in a, a questionnaire for me to fill out. And I wasn't going to do it. And he said, uh, John told me, you know, you're in no, no condition to resist. You better fill it out. And so, you know, we, John did the writing for me. And, <clears throat> and we made up a whole bunch of stories. Dramisi's help and moral support was not without conflict, however. Quote Myers. We had sort of a personality clash. 
he came from the complete opposite background of what I came from. He started off talking at me like I was some farmer's son from Texas. End quote. They were moved together from the Hanoi Hilton to the zoo on May 19, 1967, according to Meyer. A day later, they were separated and had not seen each other since. Meyer was moved to the annex in the same few-day span as Dermisi and his cellmates. Dermisi was less acquainted with Wally Newcomb, a young captain from Dermisi's fighter squadron at Karat. Dermisi had been shot down soon after Newcomb's arrival in Thailand. But Heiliger had known Newcomb from a previous assignment, maybe Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada, before their war deployments. At 28, Newcomb was the youngest man in the room and the only bachelor. And I had just been promoted to O3 uh, for the few days before I got shot down. So I, I was kind of, uh, people sort of like me were really more or less over on the other side of the wall. That was Newcomb, referring to other annex rooms where more junior American lieutenants were held. From western New York, near the Pennsylvania border, Newcomb grew up in tiny painted post, a burg with a graduating high school class of 50, but a bedroom community for the area's highly educated high-tech industry. Newcomb recalled as a teen going to Friday night drag races on backcountry roads, then Saturday night orchestra performances. He called it a fun place to grow up. It also gave him perhaps a more balanced view of the war than his cellmates. Uh, at the time, I did not intend a career in military. And uh, I'd have to say I was a uh, uh, Vietnam War skeptic. And that I've you know, been reading about the things since uh, uh, day one of the thing. Long before his war deployment, he said, Quote, my ambition was to fly the F-105D, mainly because it was the biggest, fastest, and at that time it seemed like it may have been the last of the single-seat fighters. His F-105D was blown out of the sky on a Thursday morning, August 3, 1967. Like Meyer, he broke his leg in a rough parachute landing and was captured immediately. By April 1968, he still limped badly. The third man whom Dramisi recognized was Glenn Wilson, a former squadron mate whom Dramisi barely knew. Nicknamed Red for his blazing hair color, Wilson had flown in Dramisi's squadron a few years earlier at Luke Air Force Base in Arizona, but they moved in different social circles and weren't overly friendly towards each other back then, Dramisi said. It wasn't a dislike or conflict, Dramisi explained. They just didn't know each other. As expected, they didn't keep in touch when their careers took them apart. Like Dramisi, each of the nine men in the room already knew someone else in the room, either prior to their capture or prior to their arrival in the annex. There was a web of acquaintances and friendships from previous assignments among the pilots, but none were closer than Red Wilson and Bill Baugh. They had been stationed together for three years in Bentwaters, England, and were very close friends, as were their wives, who had continued to exchange letters after Baugh's shootdown. Bill Ball had been in the Air Force a lot before they ever got to Hanoi and were real pals. And it was kind of a coincidence in the same room together, you know. That was Mike McCushion, one of their cellmates. Long after his release, Ball used to recount the moment he and Wilson were reunited in the annex. When Ball left the United States for a Vietnam combat assignment in November 1966, his wife Mary and their three children moved to his hometown in Ohio. She was three months pregnant with their fourth child. Ball was shot down and captured in January 
months before the baby was due. Over more than a year of captivity, it had no contact with the world outside the prison. Like many other captured Americans, the North Vietnamese had not released his name as a POW. Unknown to him, Bob was listed as MIA, missing in action. No one outside North Vietnam knew he was alive, and he didn't know if Mary's pregnancy and the birth went well or if he had a son or daughter. The unknowing had only added to the agonies of this hell. When Ba was shoved into the annex cell in April 1968 and saw his old friend Red, his heart leapt. Their baby was due in June 1967, ten months ago. Assuming Mary and Red's wife Adlin was still writing and Red was shot down after that, he might know about the baby. As soon as the guards left the room and shut the door, Bill rushed up and asked. Bill quoting Red. Oh yeah, she had the baby in June, Red said. She wrote Adlin about it. Adlin wrote me about it before I got shot down in August. Everything came out okay and everyone's fine. Bill laughed and nodded eagerly. This was the first joy he'd felt in so many, many, many months. More than a year. The anticipation was killing him. Well? Well what? Was it a boy or a girl? Huh? Come on, Red, a boy or a girl? Red looked around the room. He looked at his feet. He looked everywhere but at Bill. Finally, he said quietly, Shit, Bill, I don't remember. Red was a joker. His reputation for bullshitting you was well known in fighter pilot circles. But Bill was in no mood to play games. That's not fucking funny. Come on, Red, don't do this to me. I'm serious, Bill. I can't remember. I know she told me, but I don't remember. I'm really sorry. No amount of prodding, cajoling, or pestering could make Red commit to a sex. Bill wanted to throttle his friend, but was still overjoyed to know Mary and their baby had been fine. Wilson died of melanoma in 1988, long before this book took root. But he and his temper played a central role in the story, recalled via anecdotes by each of his surviving cellmates. He was affable and well-liked, but his cellmates all recalled his short fuse and foul mouth. Bill Baugh chuckled. He could get abrasive. And he cited two common Wilson quotes. That's bullshit. And where the fuck did you get that? Baugh concluded, not mean, but he didn't mince words when he didn't agree. Wilson was a lanky West Virginian who'd played college basketball at Dartmouth. Like Baugh, he flew the F-4C, a big two-seat fighter bomber. The North Vietnamese had bagged him with a flak job. It was a tactic they used often. They had carefully mapped many standard U.S. flight paths, which seldom varied. They would set up an attractive decoy target, maybe a dummy surface-to-air missile site, something American reconnaissance aircraft would surely spot. It was too dangerous for American planes to fly low enough or slow enough to recognize the fakery. Then the NVA would position the real missiles and anti-aircraft guns along the flight path the U.S. aircraft would use to attack. It was often a turkey shoot. Many American pilots were shot down and killed or captured that way. But Red Wilson's personal flak job carried cruel irony. Air Force pilots in Southeast Asia flew 100 combat missions into Vietnam. Mike McGrath chuckled, Navy pilots had no such luxury. He was shot down on his 179th mission. Air Force survivors of their 100th mission were rewarded with the safety net of an assignment in the United States at home with their families. 
That flak job on August 7, 1967, was Wilson's 100th mission. He'd already had his plane ticket back to the States. Instead, he got a ticket to Hanoi. Wilson had come north to Hanoi, through the Hanoi Hilton, and into the annex with Lauren Lungiel, an RF-4 reconnaissance pilot shot down two days after Wilson. Laurie, as he was known by, was from Linfield, Massachusetts, and had a thick New England accent. He identified his aircraft as an AFOA. At five foot four, he was the only man in the cell shorter than Dramisi. He'd begun his fighter pilot training in 1958 with the Air National Guard, but wasn't getting the flight time he wanted, so he volunteered for active duty in 1964. In 1967, he volunteered for a tour in Southeast Asia. Quote Laurie, My wife didn't appreciate that, as it turned out. He deadpanned. He arrived at the 15th Tactical Reconnaissance Squadron in June. Two months later, he was in torture. But it took 30 days to get to Hanoi. And that was, uh, really the worst 30 days overall uh, of the five and a half plus years I've been over there. By day, he was paraded through villages, stoned and beaten by villagers who hated American aviators for bombing their country. He spent nights bound and bouncing in the bed of a Hanoi-bound truck. They didn't drive on, on roads like you and I are wearing potholes. He'd bounce a foot off the truck and slam down. He'd get over near where the, the Vietnamese were sitting. And they'd hit you with the butt of their gun. Langell made what he called a very bad tactical error on his and Wilson's journey to Hanoi. One time he was untied to relieve himself. Momentarily left alone because the Vietnamese had a cultural aversion to watching people urinate or defecate, he saw the large water pots that the Vietnamese used to boil water. Didn't have much water, they weren't giving me much. So I took some, drank a bunch of water, it hadn't been boiled yet. And I ended up with dysentery something for years. Really? And I, I lost probably 40 to 50 pounds that, uh, that first month. He and Wilson got to the Hanoi Hilton in early September and suffered through two weeks of interrogation and torture in Heartbreak Hotel. They were moved to the annex in October, and along with Newcomb, Tom Norris, and Ed Atterbury, they had been roommates since. The room shuffle of April 1968 moved Norris out of their cell and brought in Mike McCushion, who had been in a zoo cell next door to Bodramisi and Heiliger. He'd known them for months through the walls and via the zoo's covert communications networks, but they'd never met in person until they were brought together in the annex. In fact, McCustom recalled that he was the last man to join them in Annex Room 6, and that his zoo cellmates, Bob Weidman and Charlie Plum, were not moved to the annex. Quote McCustom, I recall being moved to the zoo annex only a matter of days after the three of them, Bodramisi Heiliger, departed. I was put in with Dramisi, Lungiel, Heiliger, Newcomb, Baugh, Glenn Wilson, Atterbury, and Al Meyer in that fateful Room 6. The 30-year-old McCustion was an F-105 pilot from Meyer Squadron in Thailand. They had been friendly prior to their captures, and McCustion also knew Newcomb from a past assignment. In the annex, McCustion and Newcomb would quickly grow tight. They were the youngest men in the room. I'm from Nebraska. Okay. Went to school on a golf scholarship. Yeah, I have an engineering degree. I thought I was going to be an architect. Oh, really? 
uh, I went to the University of Nebraska. Uh-huh. ROTC was mandatory in those days. If you went, they called that a land grant college. If you went to a school where the land that the school sat on had been given by the government to build the college, which the University of Nebraska was, it made ROTC mandatory. So if you went to that school and you were a male, only applied to males, you had to go to ROTC for two years. And so I looked at that and I thought, let's see, private, foxhole, lieutenant, pilot. I'll take Air Force. And that was about the depth of my decision. In fact, until pilot training following his 1961 commission, he had never been in an airplane. McCushion was married with one child and, like Baugh, another on the way, when he was captured May 7, 1967. He, too, was missing in action and without any connection to his family, as were Heiliger, Meyer, and perhaps Langell and Newcomb. Most of the MIAs would remain MIA until late 1969. But in April 1968, the U.S. government already knew Dramisi, Wilson, and the ninth man in the room had been captured by the North Vietnamese. In fact, Dramisi had been on the radio at the Sandys, American A-1 Sky Raider aircraft that escorted pararescue helicopter crews, up to the moment of his 1967 capture, and Wilson was apparently one of the few American POWs receiving letters from home. The ninth man, Ed Atterbury, was shot down August 12, 1967, while on a reconnaissance mission 10 miles northeast of the city of Jialam. Two days later, the Daily Record newspaper of Mexico, Missouri, published an Associated Press story that reported the official North Vietnamese newspaper, Nan Dan, published photos of Atterbury, his backseater Tom Parrott, and another American pilot, the aforementioned Tom Norris. The state newspaper said the aviators were captured or killed, but in the photo of Atterbury, he appeared to be tired and bruised, but alive. <laughs>